Hey everybody, thank you for checking out the Real Abhinav Audio Experience. I just want to let you know, even if you don't finish this episode, that I have tremendous amount of love for you and I wish nothing but good things to come for you this year. Even though we're going through a crazy crisis globally, I know that it's going to get better and I know deep inside you do too, which is why you're here. You know, I'll go deep enough to say, like, I believe that all conversation is just like answering questions for the most part. It's very rarely is it not, you know, even yeah, even even something I've had is an idea that I've, I've put upon some of my friends and they haven't been able to counter it yet is like all of your conversation is around questioning and and everything ends in an agreement, even if you disagree, because you agree to disagree and walk away from the conversation. And it's like, yes, very, Ooh. very few people can actually like argue back with that one. I'm curious what you have to say about it. Well, it's so funny that you bring it up. So I have I have a, a, a good philosopher friend of mine. Um, his name's Slavoj Žižek, and um, really just odd names. Sounds like guy. a real philosopher, a Russian guy. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah. Some name you can't <laughs> even pronounce. Um, no, he's 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 still around. He's right up there with Noam Chomsky. All of them. In fact, they don't get along very well. Um, <laughs> but he he says this. He goes, you know, one of his greatest kind of taboo things that he doesn't like is this agree to disagree argumentation. Cause he says, listen, he goes, I want to argue like, mm. like your agreement to disagree is you saying, I want to keep my thought and, and my thought process where it is. I don't want to change. Right. So if I'm sitting here and I, so for him, it's the ultimate disregard. Like, because we live in a culture that says, I want to believe what I want to believe and you can believe what you want to believe. So rather than coming at this from a very almost, because that sounds like it's not coming at it from a very like, um, like a, like a perspective of, of, of humility. Mm-hmm. It sounds like I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. So I'm just going to walk away. Right. Whereas, you know, and, and by the way, that works well in a culture that endorses individualism because it's, it's saying, listen, I don't want to think like you, or I don't want to absorb your thought. Now, see for him, his argument is all built on this idea that you don't have truth. I don't come at you with any truth. You don't come to me with any truth, but maybe through the grappling, through the disagreements, we might encounter truth, not always promised, but you right. And so if there is a capital T, and here's where my postmodern side comes out and says there is no capital T truth, right? But if there was, then it's in this I this this dialectic argument that yes. we have going on. I think that's very important, and I think we've already gotten into something that I was very interested to talk to you about, which is the diversity of opinion, because it seems like a lot of what we're seeing today, especially in my side on the social media front, I see a lot of people are acting as if their opinions are the truth, that they what they believe is the way it is. And if someone else they encounter on social media, because it's such an ecosystem or an echo chamber for whatever your ideas are and reverberates that all the time. So it's very difficult for people to like face someone who has a different idea than them, because they'll just generally be like, wait, I I don't agree with this. I don't have to listen to this. I can just live in my bubble. And so it's, it's very hard because we're not making a ton of progress because we're not open to hearing what other people have to say, especially if what they have to say is a criticism about our beliefs or our viewpoints because we're so tied up to it, right? And you're bringing up a really good point here is this, if you don't have that discourse, that dialogue, how are you expecting to find truth, quote unquote, or what we believe to be, I guess, true, it's like there's not there's not one singular way of looking at it and it's and it works in every situation. We have to have a dialogue about it and then decide on a moment by moment basis when is this relevant and when is the other side relevant, right? Like 
it's so polarizing nowadays. It's just it's my way or the highway type of situation. I never thought we would be in this situation, but and with with social media having all this availability, <laughs> but we're quite in the opposite realm of things, you know. Brings me to like really ask you a little bit about like why is it that you've gotten into becoming, I think you call yourself a behavior experimentalist, which to me just encompasses a lot of different things. But I'm curious to hear, like if in your own words, how did you get into this and why do you even do this? Like where, where does this all begin for you? Great question. Thank you um, for asking. Well, it does combine quite a few things. So, um, and and that is the title I had used in my talk. Um, and the reason being is because I'm by trade, I'm a behavioral scientist and social psychologist, mm. but because I don't necessarily always adhere to the structures or to the academic structures of how behavioral science should work. And I'm always tinkering with what that looks like in real time. So, you know, if I'm creating a research project, I don't necessarily always adhere to the stats or any of the kind of processes or the bureaucracy that's always in place, but also because I always, and this is more personal and philosophical, is that I really don't see anything we do as, as a species as being done, uh, meaning as being finished. So everything's an experiment. Being human is an experiment. We're oh, sure. constantly, right, discovering the limits of who we are and what even that entails. So for me, it is combining a lot of behavioral science and a lot of social psychology and evolutionary psychology, competitive um, zoology, comparative zoology, all of these different things about human behavior, animal behavior, and trying to understand what it is to be human in the here and now. So again, so the experimental part is both metaphor and literal. Gotcha. And so tell me how that ties into like what nudge culture is all about. Yeah, so Nudge Culture is a behavioral science organization that works with governments. Um, well, we've worked with governments, prisons, uh, the, the United Nations schools. Um, pretty much we work with almost any and all major sectors across society. And we're, we're building out behavior, postmodern behavioral frameworks that look to invite people in, like let's say for example, a research project, the typical stance from a behavioral science perspective is to essentially leave out those that you are doing the experiments on. And so we want to include those people in the experiment. So that's the kind of postmodern arc where we're like, no, 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 we don't, there isn't this objectivity because I'm bringing my bias to the table as well. So the reality is, is that we're going to try to subdue our biases by recognizing them in a non top down hierarchical model of building out research projects. So nudge culture is all about consultancy. It's all about building out structures and behavioral frameworks that, that, that optimize. Like, like for example, let's, let's say it's, it's workplace engagement. So we would work with, you know, HR, typically HR, and we would say, okay, listen, what are your issues? Is it employee engagement? Is it that there's no trust? Is there a lack of empathy? You're looking to change your whole leadership structure. Mm. What it is and what we would do is we, we would work on micro steps because a lot of people hear the word nudge and they think it's from A to B. It typically is these micro steps. So it's A1, A2, A3, A4, A5, and all the way to B and then same with C. So we're building out these micro steps to get them to their eventual goal. So, you know, what might for some 
sound like an easy process. This one tends to take a, a much longer one, but it's one that's more robust and sustainable because it actually ends up lasting longer because you're making the steps incremental, which is actually more congruent with human behavior, meaning we just don't like change. So <laughs> change for us is, is, is a lot more smaller. And you know, there's another element to why that is. But um, yeah, that's, that's what nudge culture is all about in a nutshell. Gotcha. And what, I guess, is this just the culmination of your history and you all the things you've done and you decided that I think the best path forward is to create a business or a consultancy that focuses on, you know, helping others see, you know, or create sort of the environment that they desire. Uh, and, and it seems like when you talk about micro steps or micro actions, they're going to be very catered towards getting people uh, to move towards the direction that they're looking to go to. And is, is that around the same lines? Am I on the right page? Okay, good. So the reason I bring it up, right, and and you brought up already a good point around micro actions is tell me why is it so difficult for human beings or us in in your your perspective like to do things that are maybe seemingly not fruitful in their actions, right? Like you do small little things like writing your goals down or whatever have you, but they don't really, you know, come up with a result right away. So we don't do them. Like little things that would be good for us, like maybe – eat a little bit less, right? Or go for a walk or whatnot. We tend to avoid the little things because we're in favor of, you know, hey, if I don't get this immediate ROI, especially now that we live in an instant gratification world, we don't do anything, (laughs) right? We're like, well, I can't clearly, you know, see what's going to come out of this in the immediate sense, so I don't do it. I feel like we're moving away more and more and more with that kind of uh, mindset. I'm curious to hear, like, what have you seen as kind of like the antidote to that, I suppose, and and like, what do you recommend, you know, for people that are stuck in that rut? Because I know too many people that are like that. They want to achieve things. They don't know really how to get there. Consistently lost, you know, all kinds of things we can talk about, you know, behavior and, and states of like mental health and all that. But I just want to hear what you think. Yeah, that's such a great question. And like you said, I, I think it's a relevant one. And I think it's one that needs to be constantly asked, especially with new research always on the cusp of emerging and so on. But I think from my experience and from the kind of audience and people that I've dealt with along the way, I think there is definitely a pattern within us. And um, psychology refers to it as the hedonic ladder. And Mm. it's essentially what happens when we start with a goal and will have these massively high aspirations. And what'll end up happening is we'll end up falling back into our baseline. So we'll, so, so every individual has a status quo. And so the tendency is to say, okay, listen, January, February, I'm gonna go to the gym, I'm gonna lose weight, it's gonna happen, right? And, and there's a lot of, like a lot of energy and a, and a lot of push, a lot of encouragement. Maybe they even have like the awesome poster of what they might look like in a month or two, whatever it is, and then the baseline pops in. One thing is, is because they haven't worked out a system. So to me, success, especially if we're talking about gym membership or, or, or fitness, is that you have to realize that behaviors are not solidified without a reward. And I know that almost sounds like I'm talking about giving a child a piece of chocolate. Mm-hmm. And in one sense, you are. From the neuroscientific perspective, you're, you, you totally are. You want to give yourself a dopamine hit. Right. You want to become an addict towards good habits. Right. And so what drives us towards the status quo, for example, in terms of fitness, and I talked about this recently on LinkedIn, 
was new research is showing that in terms of its connection to fitness is people's perspective while they're working out. And I know it sounds minuscule, but is that they tend to hate what they're doing while they're doing it. So they'll get all of the happiness chemicals, all of the excitement, and they'll really, really run at their fitness regime at the beginning, maybe even feel good at the end, but even during it, they're like, this, this sucks. Like, I really hate this, right? And so the new research that they're showing is that people need to change their perspective even in the midst of a fitness routine. So that's, that's one example. And again, that's a simple example, is literally change your perspective. You know, and if I were to kind of take a step back and answer your question even more succinctly, I would say that it's about awareness. When, when we talk about human behavior, you have to be aware of why you do what you do. If you don't, you're simply going to fall back into any routine because awareness is power, you know. And so when you find out what your limitations are, what your triggers are. And again, this is going to be very personal, right. depending on the context of what you want to accomplish is that you have to figure out that like, like, listen, if I have a status quo, what is it? Does my status quo need a reward to push me beyond it? And if it does, what does that mean? Right? So again, for the fitness person who might be like, okay, listen, not only do I need to do fitness, I need to watch what I'm eating and I love chocolate. So, so let's say that this particular person has, has an addiction to chocolate, which by the way, is completely mythology, but let's just say it exists, um, right? And they have this addiction and they wanna stop it. Well, you don't sit there after a seven day, like, um, um, like kind of jogging practice and then don't eat chocolate. Like you don't eat a carrot and say, good job, right? You literally, you'll, you'll eat chocolate. And so you don't want to keep yourself away from the very thing that you're trying to not eat, because what you then do is you create a system that says, I'm still being punished. So now you've created a behavior around a punitive response, right? It's like, well, now, now I'm in trouble because nobody really sits there and says, I love, well, I mean, unless they're maybe vegetarian or a bunny, but I mean, like, I love, you know, carrots but people will say, I love chocolate. And again, that's cultural, you know, all of these kinds of things actually contribute to what we think about food as well. But, you know, there's, there's also the fact that our brain is pattern seeking. So we're constantly looking for patterns. So if we do like the first two exercises and we feel achy and tired and weak, our brain's going to be like, don't do that again. Do not do that again. So our brain is not really it's kind of lazy and so meaning we need to be in charge of it because if we allow it to tell us what what to do well we'd be like our ancestors right we'd be running from saber-toothed tigers who don't exist and in some sense we still do it's just anxiety right and so there's and there's another element there's there's agency detection and this is why by the way some people hate fitness so agency detection is also what people do when they have conspiracy theories so this is and this is an ancient evolutionary hangover that we have where like let's say we're living in the cave we're hanging out with our family and we hear a rustle in the bushes nearby automatically we're going to be like we need to go hmm. why because we only have one or two options it's either the wind, which it probably will be, or it's a saber-toothed tiger coming to maul us to death, right? So again, we do that with our with any routine. We're, we give it meaning and we're gonna like, okay, this routine isn't really good for us or this routine is really good for us. And so what we do is we depend upon our language 
and probably more than we actually are aware of. And this is why I say awareness, I think, is the, the major number one step right. for people who want to actually embed a routine of any kind into their life is that you have to be fully aware of how your brain works, how your body works, how you are conditioned, how your parents taught you, how what your culture says about this particular action that you want to include into your daily life. So imagine someone says to you, that sounds like a lot of work. I have to get all these things sorted out before I can achieve my goals. <laughs> How am I supposed to ever get anywhere? I don't have my my uh, behavior all you know informed, and I don't know all these things about myself. Does that mean I can never get anywhere? You know, like curious to hear how you continue with that. Ooh, good question. So I would think it's not one or the other. Meaning, like I th I think that that there is a part of your brain that you're just gonna have to be like, I've got to do this. But while you're doing that be working on all of these different components. Be like, listen, that thing's not gonna injure me. It's just fitness. You know, it is not hurting me. It's actually good for me. So change the neurocircuitry and the messaging and the ideology that has been passed on to you while you're doing it. Change your story. And That's what exactly. Tony Robbins would say, I suppose. Yes, got yes, you, got yes, you. yes. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, the fitness example specifically, because I don't know if you knew, but I used to compete in bodybuilding for a little while. Um, awesome. and, uh, you know, I'd started as like a 110 pound kid when I was starting to work out and while the town was competing and I won the West coast classic, you know, I was wow, pretty, pretty beefed up. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was, uh, 2014 when I stopped competing in bodybuilding and kind of started to get the rest of my career path or like, you know, financial life in order, because let's face it, being a bodybuilder doesn't make you a whole lot of money. <laughs> um, it actually costs quite a bit. Arnold. Well, yeah. well, unless you unless you really go down that path for you know a decade or two and have a couple of good, you know, signing deals and whatnot. But even then, it's really not what it's all cut out to be. But that's not why I got into it. I didn't make come and get into it for my career. But you know, I I was thinking about it while you were saying this earlier in my head around like how did I push myself to somehow work out two to three times a day, eat on a deficit, and you know continuously beat myself up every single day of the week without days off, especially when I was getting ready for competitions. I would rarely be taking a single day off a week. It would be every two weeks or so a day off. And you're just working out like every day, morning, middle of the day, at evening, at nighttime. And meanwhile, you're like wow. depriving yourself of all these calories <laughs> and everything else that you want to eat. And I, I can kind of understand like what you said around like, yes, I had this bigger goal in mind, right? It was a lot of times for me, what pushed me at that age, I, was, I started competing when I was 18 or I guess started at 18 and competed my first show at 19 and uh 18 through like 22 i suppose i was in a very interesting space in my head where i have gotten out of high school i'm trying to like go into college realizing what education is all about but at the same time i'm struggling and emotionally internally about like my life like what am i doing yeah. as a kid and you know all the people that have been rude or bullying me or things that haven't worked out you know high school is not fun for a lot of people you guys i just wanted to step in here real quick and let you know that we also have this full conversation live on youtube where you can see the video of both of us talking i tend to feel like video captures a little bit more human emotion and you get to really see what someone's reaction was to a statement so if you're interested in checking that out you can go to youtube and search for blossom media studio now let's get back to this episode. Um, it was mostly fun for me uh, because of my musical background. I used to I used to be in like uh, all the different music groups, like drumline and band and all that stuff. So I, I'm a drummer. Oh, wow. So that really helped, you know, kind of keep things at bay. And, and it was something that I was good at. So I always had that avenue. But when I got out of school, I couldn't really be continuing in music. Bodybuilding became that, like spending the time at the gym was something that I was like, okay, if I 
I guess the main thing was it was full accountability. Everything's on yeah. me. Whatever I do, how I put food in my you know body and what I do to myself is completely going to be dependent on how I look and what results I get. There's literally nobody else I can point fingers to and blame anymore. Right. So it was, it was completely like, I think that was the real sense of like kind of ownership, but also the, the dilemma. Cause you're like, shit, everything is my fault. Right. If I don't look good or if this is the, the case, it's all on me. So it was very humbling in that sense. It's like kind of realizing like, okay, yes, I can't be eating the same type of food. And you know, I'm Indian. My family cooks Indian food. That's delicious. Right. And so I've been good. eating that yeah. forever, forever, but you can't eat that kind of food and get lean. It's not going to happen. <laughs> right. So like having to break all these other sort of beliefs around like what diet was like and what nutrition is like. Cause as a child, you don't grow up learning about like macronutrients and micronutrients totally. and how much of what you should eat. Sure. You maybe heard it in a biology book or whatever, but at the same time, like you don't understand practical applications. I remember till this day when I was, uh, once I moved to the United States, I know I started eating a lot more and gaining some more weight as a kid. I didn't even realize that there was a thing as calories that you could get fat by eating a lot. I never understood that. I was just like, could just eat as much as I wanted and never understood the concept. But one thing that really stuck out, you said that even when you're doing something like that with fitness and you're not really enjoying the process while you're in it. Yeah, for sure. I didn't enjoy waking up at four 30 or five in the morning to go do stairs for an hour and like, you know, be miserable. But I knew while I was doing it in my head, the narrative was always around like, I'm trying to prove something to myself that I can do what I want and I can get what I want out of my own, like, you know, fruition really. And then more, and of course it was always like the, the people that did me wrong. Like I'm going to get back at them in the sense of like, just, <laughs> but that was always fuel to be honest. Like a lot of that was like that negative emotion was a lot of it was fuel to push myself forward. But I yeah. started to realize like after doing that for a number of years and getting where I wanted to go, I was still unhappy. It was not fulfilled at all. I was, I've won. I looked great. I looked like friggin' insane today. I look at some of these pictures and I'm like, what the heck? That's not even me. I don't even remember who that was. <laughs> And to, and, but, but at that time in my life, if you had talked to me, I would have told you, like, I don't think I'm anything. I don't think I'm even close to where I want to be because in my head, I'm comparing myself to like the people that are way elite and, and thinking like, you know, that's the caliber of, of the top tier talent. And I'm trying to be, you know, comparing myself to them and what their lifestyle is like and how disciplined they are. But it was constantly this comparison. The reason I'm bringing yeah. this long winded story up is because something I had heard in your Ted talk you said, you know, I mean, the title of it was like living in, you know, for your future keeps you in the past. I think that's exactly what the title was. And the thing that you yeah. talked about was effective forecasting, which, you know, kind of buzzed my thoughts a little bit. And it's like, you know, if you want to get what you want, generally we have created some sort of a dialogue about it. And we, we have some hypothetical story that we use to get there. I know from my experience, I've definitely created narratives in my life in the past that have gotten me where I want to go, even till this day. Over time, though, the last several years since I started meditating, I actually went through a very low point in my Amazing. life where I was quite depressed, um, just very, very much like like out of my character completely. Like people wouldn't recognize me. Like I imagine someone like me who has this type of like personality who's talking to you like it is very quiet <laughs> and never laughing and never smiling for yeah. months. I mean, my parents didn't even recognize who I was. I didn't recognize who wow. I was. I couldn't get out of it. So I knew I went to a couple of doctors and they were like, yeah, your testosterone is shot. You're very depressed. You should get on some therapy and some, you know, testosterone as well. And I'm like, wow. no and no, I don't want to do either of those things. I had just finished competing in bodybuilding a year and a half, two years prior. And I have, and I have, I'll admit, I took some drugs as well at the time because I wanted to be the best. Ultimately, yeah, I was ready to, to, to be the best of the best. I did it naturally for a number of years. Highly recommend people to stay that route unless they genuinely think they have a shot. I did it because I really genuinely think I had a shot. I did. And, um, 
and I went with it and I kind of understood the, the pluses and the minuses of it. But man, I couldn't, I couldn't for the life of me figure out like, how have I lived my whole life delusional with my thoughts and realizing that none of them are real and I've just created all these things and somehow by fluke of the universe, some of this has come to fruition. What really stuck out to me in your talk is you mentioned you had parents that grew up, I guess, selling drugs or having, you know, yes. that lifestyle. And then you, your mother also, you know, went into prostitution, which I'm not sure how much you want to touch on all that. But at the same time, what really got to me was that trauma created something in you that has gotten you to where you are today. Similarly, I yes. suppose my upbringing has gotten me to where I am today. But you mentioned this thing about effective forecasting and why we shouldn't maybe look at that broken mechanism as something that we continue to use. So talk to me about that. What is that all about, that that effective forecasting? Why you don't, don't think we should use that? And even though it does get sometimes results, I suppose, what's a better alternative? Like, give me something about that. Well, oh man. That was a long, um, that I was going to talk for like 30 minutes right there. <laughs> no, that was awesome. I mean, I, and, and I have a question for you after I'm done as well. Is, Please. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, now here's the thing about any bias, most biases, most biases have a duplicity to them. So you, and most of the time, especially as behavioral scientists, we tend to focus on the negative side, mm. right? Now there is a good side to it and you pretty much inferred it a lot when you were sharing a bit about your experience, you know? Um, and so maybe I'll kind of start this backwards is that you can use effective forecasting for positive outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a bias, but my talk specifically focused on the negative side of using the bias and how we all do it every day. Now, the same thing might happen, but the tendency is we don't use it in the positive because we tend toward the negative. We tend to be quite defeatist. We tend to be quite like, oh, I'm not going to get the job, right? Even if we come in confident, there's a little bit of us, you know, that old school like picture of like <laughs> the the angel and the devil right. and, and they're constantly nagging us. And, you know, that kind of thing is, is what's happening. It's that kind of like, like training, trauma, um, um, childhood conditioning, school conditioning. If I may, are you trying to say ever. that you're listening to the, I guess, the, the wrong voice perhaps in your head is what you're trying to say in another way? Like we have yeah. all these narratives, right? And you're saying like there's this devil and this angel, I suppose. But yeah. whose voice are you giving more attention to? It seems like what you're saying, right? From your talk, it's more around like we automatically tend to look at that negative sort of like, I'm not good enough. Like, I won't think I'll make it. My parents never made it this far. They were only good enough to make $50,000 a year. So I don't think I'll ever make more than that. You know, <laughs> yeah. kind of like these, these real like life stories where like you grew up in it. So it's like, how do you choose to break away from it if nobody else has shown you otherwise? Right. And that's it right there. You actually said the word. So yes. And yes. So, <laughs> um, what I was saying in my talk is still very true. I still, because there's, there's a tendency, we have a bias towards being negative. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the, the, if, if we're too positive, things might turn out the way we want and then life might actually make us happy. <laughs> I'm being kind of sarcastic, but the, the reality is a little bit embedded in my sarcasm in that we, we tend to err on the negative because we don't want to be let down. Right, and, and so that is part of that trauma and that training and that conditioning that we all go through, and most of the time not fully aware of it. And some of us just accept it as part of who we are. 
And so, you know, when I was sharing that, I was, I was sharing again, like I said, probably mostly on the negative end of it. Whereas the positive side would be somebody who visualizes, you know, um, them walking away, let's say if they want to, um, this is no pressure on anybody, is if they wanted to walk away with a six pack and they wanted to start a fitness regime, then them obviously still doing the work, right? You still have to do and perform the actual act. You can't just sit there, you know, having a drink in a, like a 12 pack a day and then be like, oh, look at my six packs growing. It's not going to happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be like a six pack with dyslexia. And so it's, it's, it's completely the opposite of what you'd want. So, you know, there is a positive side to it. So I, I, I guess I wanted to stress that. It's just that, of course, and this is really bad, but negative press actually does way better than positive press. Yeah. So sure. that's why I wanted to focus on the end part, which was hopefully a little bit more positive, but also lead in with the fact that, hey, listen, all of us do this. We're all in this together. You know, even, even cartoon characters, <laughs> you know, um, get in this cycle where we, we don't challenge the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so we just embrace and accept the limitations mm, and they become true the of who we one. are. That's it. That's the money sentence right there. We accept it because we don't know any different. You know, yeah. and I know you had something to ask. If you want to, you can. Otherwise, I'll go. I have some, I can keep going. Um, <laughs> but I guess where my head's at is this. So, so from your history of like, you know, understanding meditation and the value in that. And also, of course, you know, self-reflection and and just seeing your, you know, who you are without your ideas, I suppose, if you just sit still, you can really see how much is going on inside of you at all times and how much of that is just automatic and perhaps not even in our control. You know, what's been interesting for me in my, I guess, spiritual journey is like after kind of awakening to the truth of life where it's everything is essentially like self-created, the problems and the, the character that I believe myself to be and what my limitations are and all those that all those things. Of course, the body has some limitations with it like like one you know time being one of them it's time bound yeah. right and and so curious like to kind of hear from your perspective also as as you've you know understood a lot about different people's behavior and things like this what's the approach here when you're kind of torn between maybe torn is not the word but like you're you have both feet in in each of the realms like the spiritual realm and also this world that we live in where we have to act as these somewhat characters of, you know, transaction, whether you're being a teacher yeah. or a parent or a worker or whatever have you, but also at a deeper level, you have this knowing that, Hey, none of this really matters. Like at the end of the day, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't really control any of this to be honest. Like I do, but I don't, it's this like the idea and ideas. Like, I know I'm saying some stuff, which I'm sure you're getting it, but for the most part, most people, when I talk like this have no idea what I'm talking about. Like, what do you mean? It doesn't matter. Of course it matters. If you go out there and you walk in front of the street, you get hit by a car. It's like, yep. I'm not saying cause and effect doesn't exist. I'm just saying how much of that cause do you consciously can control is a myth is like that in itself is, is what I talk about is like, can you stop the ocean from like bringing waves or can you stop the sun from going around with your conscious control? You couldn't do it, right? Like all of these other factors in your life that you don't control. There's only a, a subset of them that we think that we can control, I suppose. And I find myself in my evolution of the last five years finding this this struggle between, because I used to be a very highly disciplined person that could get whatever I wanted because, you know, the bodybuilding background, I suppose, having like this music background, like learning about, you know, how beautiful that is and how it connects to each other. And I'm very interested in like people and behavior and psychology because 
large part of me growing up was trying to fit in, especially to a different culture coming from a different country. It's like, I understood like, you know, how to like kind of appeal and appease to different crowds and get into like their, you know, groups and whatnot. And partly I learned that from my dad who has been in sales and marketing his whole life. And, and right. at the same time, it was kind of like, I'm at this point in my life right now where it's like, I'm having trouble figuring out, do I want to continue to be moving in the path that I've discovered through my, you know, spiritual process where I, I tend to just kind of let things like relinquish the, the expectations and relinquish the, the ideas that I have to impose upon this world and how to make things happen. But then I also understand like, how else do things manifest if I don't think about them and use, I guess, this effective forecasting to create, you know, I'm, I'm torn, man. Like, help me out. What do you, do you see what's happening here? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely hear the, the kind of dichotomy. Like, how do we, how do we kind of remove the negative sides and then actually embrace the positive sides of it, right? I mean, and then how does that affect us internally? Because, you know, when you use the word spirit, I, you know, one is I don't think there's a disconnect because a lot of times in the world, and I don't mean this to be religious, but I mean, like, is, you know, for me, if we're making ourselves better humans, that mm -hmm. has spiritual value, right? So, so because there are, are elements that we're dealing with that are beyond language there. And, and so for me, anything that is beyond language. So you go out and you go for a long hike and you go to this vista and it's amazing. And it leaves you just, well, you know, out of breath almost. Right, it's breathless and you're, you, know, you don't have any that's, words. That's spiritual to me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's that moment where it gets beyond the explanatory. Right. Because the problem is language limits us. So one of my favorite quotes that talks about language is by um, a philosopher named Julia Kristeva. And she says this, she goes, you know, language exiles us from the object of our desire. Language exiles us from the object of our desire. Hmm. right because it creates the limitations and expectations and like effective forecasting places a path in front of you right so for example if we look at success and we think success is like becoming you know following the footsteps of tony robbins well then you've literally limited your scope your actions your hopes your aspirations even your utopia your end goal is 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 whatever your version of Tony Robbins looks like, mm. right? And so that's the whole idea of what she's saying is that you 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 pretty much cocoon your own limitations. And so this is a, again what happens with effective forecasting. If if I'm going to go win the lottery, and this is one of those those research projects that they've actually done to prove that the faulty side of effective forecasting is just bonkers. So they've followed people over three to five years after getting and winning the lottery. And everybody prior to that was like, I'm gonna buy this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna own an island, I'm gonna do this. You know, my life is gonna be completely changed. Nope nothing not one they all fell back to that hedonic ladder they all fell back to the status quo mm. and so the whole argument here from using effective forecasting in the negative is that you essentially create an environment that is constantly working against you you know and and you are working and using this faulty strategy 
all the while thinking, yes, if I just think this way, if I just do this, then that will fix everything. And then I think part of the solution is realizing it doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. That life, and this is going to sound extremely corny, but really, if I would encapsulate my whole talk, it would be life is a journey, not a destination. Because you have to realize that you're going to have these moments where your effective forecasting is going to work, then your effective forecasting is not going to work. So for, so, so for people to know what it is, effective forecasting is simply creating this kind of this this what if scenario where we will feel good after we do whatever it is once i go see the doctor i'll feel better mm-hmm. once i go and eat pizza at this place uh, my life will change once i meet mrs right or mrs right now everything will alter right okay and so yeah if i may interject i think no please do i think what i'm understanding is when we create this scenario of like, okay, if if X happens, then Y will take place, right? When we create this hypothetical, like like you yeah. said, if if I if I finally got this thing, you know, life will be complete in that sense. So that's forecasting this outcome. I've yeah. I've played around with this in, in in some of my meditations. Is like, what would it feel like right now if I had everything that I'm desiring and it was brought to me in this moment right now? What would that feel like? And I really try to like sit on that for like a few minutes try to grow in that and like just kind of let the visions of that kind of grow and grow and grow and you start to feel this really amazing sort of high i guess but it's i don't know like is it enough to say that that's just a delusional state versus like you know you're really starting to feel some emotions where i don't know if you end up having to get those things would feel indifferent right like i don't know if i guess what i'm trying to say is my understanding from those experiences is you will not be any more complete than you are in this moment in that other moment once you get that thing right 100 percent. however this is where like you know the <laughs> mind comes in right so it's like well shit then i don't have to do anything i can just sit here and feel like i'm driving my ferrari living in my mansion at the beach and i feel great and i don't have to do anything because i'm fully complete right so this is where like <laughs> I guess now I understand because you mentioned the the quote about, you know, using words to describe our success, so to speak. It's like, first off, you're limiting yourself. I think the other way I've heard is like words are all defined in terms of other words. There's a circular library, right? It's yes, there's infinite permutations of stringing words together. But at the end of the day, they're all just defined in terms of each other. So how can we distill down our experiences of life, which are which are so multidimensional into a single dimension of using words, right? Like just jabbering through our throat, like these vibrational frequencies that we've considered to be important. You know, one of the interesting things that I've understood about it is like from being playing music or really just enjoying music is that like I can feel differently when I listen to certain music or certain artists that I like and they can induce this state in me that changes me completely. And same thing with like, you know, a really good public speaker or a speech or a motivational video or whatever you watch, you hear certain things and they make you feel a certain way. So it's just like these words that we use are such a, it's an effective tool in that sense, but it's, it's such a limiting experience versus like, imagine, you know, you have children giving them a hug. Like you can't even put that into words, right? How do you put, how do you put giving someone a hug into words? I guess the closest people get to it is like they use some poetry to describe certain things that are like kind of reading between the lines. But again, we're dodging it at every moment in time. It's like every, the moment you place a word on it, you've already limited the experience to that word. And it's much bigger than that. And it's consistently like trying to like, I don't know. It's like you're, 
putting a stone in the ocean it take creates a ripple and it goes away and like you're consistently having to throw them to like show that there's all these ripples there otherwise you don't see anything kind of like and it's just i don't even know where i'm trying to go with it to be honest with you right now in this conversation but like to me it just feels like that piece where knowing what i know at a deeper level at a at a deeper intuitive level that i don't need any of these external things to be complete but i do have these ambitions to create and manifest things into life but i keep yeah. getting swayed or or persuaded by my own thinking perhaps to 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 think differently right like to create yes. this this uh this game that i need to climb and chase and you know beat other people in otherwise it's like why do it? But then I also know that that game doesn't fulfill me entirely. That's where like the spiritual practice comes in or meditation comes yes. in because you don't feel complete in that. And that's another thing I can speak to is when I was competing, the day that I won, the day that I won the show that I had literally almost killed myself over winning because I was at such a deficit and I was taking oh. all these other things. And uh, I, I would like, n normally I would pass out, I had like heart murmurs and stuff. Like you can't imagine the type of shit I was going oh, through. But I was looking like a freaking Adonis God at the time. I looked shredded, <laughs> ripped and just crazy. And externally, everybody thought that I was complete. I had everything going for me, but only I knew internally how much of a turmoil and, and disorder there actually was yeah. internally, which I couldn't even really articulate. Even, even now, maybe this is the only time I've been able to really kind of talk about it with these podcasts. Wow, it's awesome. like putting, putting, putting things into place like using words i think can be helpful because it helps you articulate your experience and sometimes listening to certain philosophers i know for me helps me put into words things that i've experienced but never can explain to someone yes. i guess in that sense i'm very empathetic or i guess very emotional sentimental person i suppose sensitive person that i've always been that way but now i'm starting to like get these other skills of like being able to speak about them and and induce a change in someone else through my speak right through the way That's i awesome. speak or whatnot so it's like i'm trying to find all this out but then i still keep getting caught up in this like this <laughs> world of duality right i suppose and I, now I, I think my conclusion at this stage is that i don't think that ever ends and i'm curious to hear what you think like i don't know if that ever ends unless you completely like give up like any pursuit at all and simply can live in the presence of whatever comes my way i will simply do that and and then that's it and maybe before i turn it over to you I think my conclusion is I've actually l realized that I can sit here and plan all these things. But then if I start to do them, I would like to say the day gets ahead of me and I haven't done these other five things and it's towards the end of the day, I'm tired and whatnot. I know I'm not going to get those done. It's like, no matter how well I've planned. So what do you do there? It's like, you have this, you have this like world that you live in where, you know, like you said, like if you're going to get those six pack abs, you can't just sit here and drink a bunch of beer and then get that abs. You have to go out and do the work. <laughs> So yeah. it's true that there's this sacrifice that we have to make to get to a better place that we think, you know, we want. But then there's this dimension of like this completeness, like sort of the philosophy, kind of the world that we've been talking yes. about. And it's like, how do you, how have you been able to tie that in, you know, in your life? I guess that's probably a better question because that would help me understand how you're navigating this. Because I can't imagine that you haven't dealt with something like this in your life. Yes. Yes. So good. So good. Okay. So yeah. So for me, and again, I was thinking about, you know, another way to encapsulate the talk because one word about the framework of time that I didn't include was the present. Mm. And, you know, I talk about the past and I talk about the future and, you know, one's filled with anxiety and one is filled with fear. Yet the present moment is co constantly here. 
-hmm. That's what we do. Tomorrow, when we're in that moment, it's the present moment. Right now, we're in the present moment. Yep. So really, if you we want to talk about it in the kind of like way in which Eckhart, you know, told talks about it, you know, there there's only the present moment. There's nothing else. And for us who are time-bound creatures, that's that's extremely hard to grasp because we've been taught to think of time as linear. But that's only one accepted argument. I mean, you can go back 500 years, thousands of years even, and there were groups and tribes who believed that time was circular, hmm. you know, and time was a wheel. Time was only when the gods would intervene. So it was all over the place in terms of how people saw time. It wasn't as constrained as we see time now through this kind of post-enlightenment society where we're so focused on history as a line or a train going towards the end of something, you know? And so for me, it's all about embracing the present moment. It's, it is all about using things like meditation, you know? Um, and for me, and this is where we are similar, I am very fitness oriented. I do rock climbing. I do spend time outside of myself, mm -hmm. meaning I, right? And so I'm not always stuck up here. And I think that's exactly when we do get locked into these habits where we become fully unaware of their influence on our life, where we become fully unaware of the damage that they can do if we continue in this state of unawareness. So for me, I think it's extremely important that people take active steps because I don't want to make it seem like I'm arguing for inaction. I'm just saying that we need to be very fully aware of our emotional state. We need to be very fully aware of what we're investing in and how we're investing in. Because at the end of the day, we're constantly investing our emotions into something. Even as we're talking here, we're both investing our emotions into this conversation, right. hopefully, right? Um, and, and, and that's where a lot of my behavioral research really, really focuses on is what are we doing emotionally? Where's our focus emotionally in everything that we do, whether it be fitness, finance, workplace, spiritually, whatever it is, because emotions are energy and emotion. And I know that sounds cheesy, but when you think about it, it completely is because you initially will put yourself in emotional state. Let's say it's fear. Oh my gosh, I'm afraid I can't pay my bills. Mm. Okay, so you have a choice, right? Right then and there. Most people don't think they do, but, and, and then what happens is inertia. So they're gonna like, okay, I can't pay my bills. So what they do is then they become this kind of deer in headlights human who is completely locked up, doesn't do anything. So that's all due to their emotional state. Right. And so and again, like we talked at the very beginning, new research has come out is that like if you're in the middle of your fitness routine and you're not feeling it, you need to start training yourself to feel it or this is not going to become a habit. It's just going to become something that you eventually let go of, you know. And so, you know, hopefully that was a little bit helpful. But also, you know, it's this idea of, again, being willing to challenge your own emotional state and say, listen, I don't need to be living in fear. I don't need to be holding on to anxiety. It's just here. It's it's just now and I need to embrace this. And once I do this, 
then I can go forth and I can go do what it is that I want to go do. And I can go and achieve those goals. So I'm not against any of that. I want to make that clear. But what, what I wanted to kind of emphasize was that it's, it's, it's very important that we are fully aware of our emotional state when we're doing what we're doing. So I think what I got out of that is, is, is if you are aware of yourself and your states and if you see them getting out of control in that sense that they're maybe, you know, very anxious or comparison filled or like, you know, judgment based is to come come back and remember that, look, you're only here right now. That's all you have to deal with is this moment. You don't have to deal with any of that other stuff. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah. in that sense, it's it's a I mean, that's the true love about life. It's like like you, you're only asked to deal with now. <laughs> you have all yeah. these other things, ideas, but you really only have to deal with the present moment. And then we have these ideas around like how the future could be or whatnot. And I agree with you because most of the time how we think things will turn out is it's almost never the case or very, you know, usually very different set of, you know, things happen and then things turn out maybe in a slightly different way. And we just choose to, I think, accept them or like make some correlation about why they happened and what was the reasoning in our head or like the way we justify it to ourselves, I suppose, is what I'm saying. You know, the, the the interesting part about it is for me is right now, the way we're living in this world, like some, I think more and more people are waking up to the truth of like, you know, yeah, your, your, your consciousness, you're not this ego character that you've been playing your whole life. Like you should yes. know that by now, if you don't welcome to the truth. And that really hurts a lot of people. And it actually can spiral you a lot into depression. I think part of that was why I got very depressed is because I think at a deeper level, we all know that we're you know, full of shit kind of, we're like making things up, <laughs> but, but at the same time, we don't want to admit any of that, right? Because we are culturally brought into this world where you have to, I mean, school, look at what that is. What did you get? What was your grade like? You're competing at a, at a level where like the, the kid that can mouth off the answer the fastest is the, is conceived to be like the, the smart one in the class or the one that's going to get the most. So you're constantly in this race of like, I have to be this certain way. Otherwise I won't be able to really kind of, you know, progress in life, I suppose. But then once this kind of truth starts to set in, maybe with enough dissatisfaction in life or whatever it is that's brought you to your moment, you know, it could be many things, could be the grace of the universe or God, whatever you want to really call it. I think the steps that we have to take after that, there's not enough out there guiding us to kind of recalibrate our new life, I suppose, our rebirth life into, into reality, kind of like, I think another way I've I've described it in the past the words slip in my thoughts right now but it's all, it's like a reintegration process I guess that's what I'm trying to say you know kind of you know you can't completely abandon everything unless you choose to like say all right screw it I'm leaving going to go sit in the mountains and uh, just do this until my <laughs> body you know releases and um, I'm free with my spirit again I think most of us <laughs> will will come and and realize like yes I, I understand this now deeper than just an intellectual level and yeah. I really want to command uh, you know, kind of serve this this entity in the best way I can so that it does what it's meant to be doing here. And I really love seeing things from that perspective. I think that's why, like in my LinkedIn, I talk about I build relationships with peace and love. I'll be like, what the fuck does that yes. mean? It's like, that love means that. that's the, the essence of, of life. It's your, where does your peace come from? Where does your love come from? Where does your anger and hate come from? It's all from within you. So finding that source of where all that originates is like the path that essentially like moves you forward in the best way possible, I suppose, because you're coming from a good place. You're coming from a pure place, right? If you're purely in a, in a peaceful state in you, 
I don't think you're going to be out there like doing some crazy vandalism style stuff, right? Like robbing or mobbing <laughs> or whatever have you. Yeah. I just don't see it. I don't understand how that could be. I think it has to be however you reflecting inside is how you're going to be doing things outside for the most part. I'm sure there's some sociopaths listening. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but but, but you, I think you understand what I'm trying to get at. And like, it's, it's interesting to me because there's one thing I heard, I think it was in a talk or an article you posted about like how we're living in a culture of silence. And I'm curious, like, is that more around not talking about these things? Like where, what I've just mentioned, where you kind of like realize the reality of what it is, but you still work in like a world where we have all this corporate stuff that you deal with and you got to be, you know, a certain way. Your friends expect you to be a certain way, your family members, your business partners or, you know, customers. And yet we can't talk about things like, man, I really can't fit into my character today. Like, I don't genuinely feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in it today, you know, like, and I don't think we'd recognize that as a real thing anymore. It's like, well, what does that mean? What do you mean? Like, do your job, like, you know, do your thing. And we're like, well, I just don't feel that way anymore. Like, that's not the true me, I suppose. Like, sometimes I don't want to play the character that I've played so well in the past, I suppose. I guess movie char- movie actors feel this way, in my opinion. You know, like Iron yes. Man guy. It's like, dude, you can only play one character. Like, be Iron Man. It's like, I don't want to play <laughs> Iron Man anymore, right? <laughs> but it's like, so it's yeah. like, we don't accept that there's this evolutionary piece to us. We always think that people, oh, yeah, you were always like the guy that was like always upbeat and like kind of, you know, this and that. And like, now you're depressed. Like, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't believe it or I don't get it. Like, is that what you kind of understand? You know, explain to me what you, I guess, meant by culture of silence in your words. Yeah. And actually, you brought up something else that's really, 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 really key, I think, to even understanding that as well. And so, yeah, our culture at large, and by that, I typically mean Western. So I have include, so I used to live in Britain as well. Uh-huh. And um, there is this stigma towards talking about where we are, who we are, whether it be the, the spiritual side of who we are as spiritual beings, or even our trauma. You know, and and I talked about that at the end of my TED talk. And so it's it's this idea that we need to break through that silence. This is the one cultural element that we cannot afford to allow, right? Um, um, to actually remain silent because people are literally killing themselves. Yes. People don't have these conversations. People don't know how to have these conversations. And when they do, they're either mocked or they're sidelined because people don't know mm. how to deal with it. So we not only have a culture of silence, we have just a culture of negligence. We have a culture of, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with this. So that's how it's going to be the culture of silence because I don't know how to deal with it. So I'm just going to avoid it. Right. And so that is exactly where I was kind of going with that. And something that you said about love. Now, um, for me, I kind of take my notion, because I love Sanskrit, which is like one of the oldest um, re- recorded languages. And then it follows through even a lot of the ancient world kind of pre like religion, folk religion kind mm. of areas of understanding love was all about the absolution of the ego. So it is literally this, and I mean, you have these, some religious leaders using the phrase, like you must die to yourself, you know? And it's, it's, it's that idea of like the ego is part of the trauma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Sigmund Freud, and this is why I say, you know, if, if you're going to challenge your own limitations, if you want to find your own liberation, then you need to challenge it at, at its core. And part of that is the ego. Part of that is letting go of the ego. You know, something interesting that you said about, you know, actors and actors probably getting exhausted about playing characters reminded me of a quote from Jim Carrey, the comedian. Yeah. 
he said, you know, um, he was talking about depression and he said, you know, depression is essentially what it says. It's deep rest from all of the characters that I feel forced that I have to play on a daily mm. basis while I walk in the world. Wow. That's you know? so good. And um, yeah. So, I mean, for me, I think it's incredibly important that we understand that the ego is not necessarily something that is compatible with our own progress because the ego is like a protective shell that we've created because of trauma. And so the more and more we defend it, the more and more a friend says something that really hits home to us and the more we defend ourselves against it, the shell gets harder. Our ego gets more solidified. But if there's truth in what they've said, then let that allow that to actually permeate through us and begin the healing process. I think we can begin letting go of the negative side of all of these biases that we carry with us. I think you're going actually back to what we started the conversation with, which is diversity of opinion, because the ego gets hurt when the opinions are against its beliefs, I suppose, or it doesn't want yes. to hear opinions that are anywhere, you know, in the ballpark of, well, if I, if I've, if this is what I give myself to you know, feel significant from, like maybe it's affiliating to a political party or an opinion or a group. And the moment someone comes to me with a different type, it's like, oh, wow, I, I, I don't know how stupid that person is. I can't understand why they don't see it this way or whatever it is. It's like all, immediately, I suppose, rational thinking goes out the door and emotional yes. protective thinking like kicks into gear, like like as almost as an automatic response, right? Um, yeah. Which is, which is really interesting because I think that's where the meditation practice can help. I still would say that I think, um, I mean, I know I can only speak from my experiences. I would say this is a journey that I have lots of ebbs and flows in. There's a moments uh, or months or weeks of at, at a time where I feel like I'm in a lot of good synergy with the universe and everything is going as is uh, and, and going well. But then there's times when I'm just, I can't get out of like the, the ego state of just comparing and I guess projecting too many things you know and i don't know if that ever entirely goes away or if you just become better at recognizing it and letting it kind of dissolve or surrender in the moment every 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 so often right like i don't know the answer but i, I think i have some ideas about it you know um curious to hear if if you would be willing to share a little bit about you wrote about this very recently around the woozle effect right i brought this up to some of my friends, I, I would I would say actually probably one friend who very close, uh, you know, we were very, very close at an earlier point in our life, you know, especially when I was in college and all that. We have different political views, I suppose. I look at yes. politics very differently. I, I, I don't kind of look at it like the traditional folks do for the most part. I tend to look at it in terms of they're still human beings no matter how much you want to hate them. So like demonizing one or two of them is not really going to change anything in the grand scheme of things. So we shouldn't marry ourselves so closely to anybody's ideas or ideologies. But really, yeah. I guess the issue or not, what, what I'm trying to get at is what, come, what came about was it seems like people nowadays, because we have so much technology and you can, you can pretty much find supporting evidence for anything you want. Yes. Right? To a degree, right? Yeah. Like you can, and the interesting thing about it is what people overlook when they're trying to defend their position is that this article or this citation or this video or whatever you're like quoting or putting out, you have no idea like, like what that person's state was when they did this. And also it's another human yes. being. It's, 
everything is fabricated to a degree. We try to like, you know, become objective on our truths and what we put out. And people have this, this idea like, oh yeah, facts. If I can throw in, you know, facts and percentages and whatnot, all of a sudden I have more credibility in my opinion. But ultimately what I think we're losing with that is we're losing our ability to, to navigate a conversation like you and I are trying to do with each other. We're trying to talk about yeah. these other things that are not us, that aren't actually direct experiences of what we have, right? Completely, like, yeah. And to me, I think that's what I understood about that woozle effect in, in that sense. Like, curious yes. if, if you would agree or, or add to that at all. Yeah, I mean, so the woozle effect is essentially using misleading citations, right, to actually bolster your argument. And so we have a lot of that today. I mean, the very fact that we have a hashtag and it's called fake news <laughs> is already indicative of the fact that we already have a culture of the woozle effect. We already have mm -hmm. a culture where people are using citations, using quotes, using, you know, anything and everything as a way in which to position themselves as an authority. Mm -hmm. And so what you're essentially doing is you're kind of creating your own version of your own halo effect. So what you're doing is like, look at this citation. So you're using the citation as the halo effect of saying, this is the authority that makes me look more authoritative. So then you make yourself more trustworthy. You know, in fact, some of the coaching industry is built around the woozle effect of like, listen, this is the new, even, even me, saying phrases like new research or whatever it is still gives the indication of authority, right? Because while I'm now associating myself with this new research and people aren't willing to call themselves on it because yep. of the ego, right? It comes back to how we present ourselves and our own confirmation bias, right? If I'm a good person, I need to prove that I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, right? right? I need to literally embed myself with this confirmation bias that I'm a good person. And the only way I can do that is by playing the social game of using all of these other biases and tools and stacking other biases on top of other, other ones like the woozle effect and confirmation bias, right? And saying, look at me, I am an authority on this particular subject. And I mean, you can, by the way, this goes across party lines and I'm just like you, right? So, I mean, for me, you know, you can, if you're conservative, you can go and look at an article on Breitbart and be like, look at that. Oh my gosh, look at right. what the leftists are doing. And the same thing with the leftists. Look at, oh my gosh, look at what CNN just reported on. But everything is slanted. Everything is paid for. Prior to doing behavioral science, I was a journalist. Hmm. And one of the reasons why I left was because of this very thing. All of the information is paid, paid for. Somebody higher than me is up there saying, this is my political allegiance. This is the message. I'm paying the bills, go and disseminate this information, mm. you know? And I saw that in more than a handful of places. And so, you know, that's, I think what we have to realize is that there is, there's, we have to be humble really when it comes to information, we have to be humble with how we approach what we think is knowledge because knowledge in and of itself is what limited by language. And we've already just talked about how language is itself part of the limitation right? A lot of people look to things like the dictionary and say, well, that's what that word means. Eh, not necessarily. That's not what it meant before these guys got together and created the meaning behind it. You know, um, the professor and the madman, a movie with um, Sean Penn and um, Mel Gibson follow that very story about the dictionary. 
right? And so it's it's literally the whole history of how this book got, com got compiled, all of the controversy behind it, right? And so we we have to understand that everything that we experience, whether it be in life, in our spiritual journey, in our physical journey, our emotional journey, is all limited. It is all limited by the way in which we express it. I have a very interesting question, just given that your past with your parents was so interesting and intriguing. Yes. With uh, drug use and, and other things. What would you say was the most important lesson that you've learned from your parents? Okay, so um, this is a good question. And I would say, and this is going to sound very pessimistic, just for the record, I'm an optimist. But I've learned who I don't want to be. That's good right? for me. I've, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if I should say any more because, I mean, that's, that's basically, and this is going to sound really awful, um, because they obviously gave me life and I'm grateful for that gift. I'm grateful for being here. I'm grateful for being here with you in this moment and this time, having these, these, these important conversations. And I'm very, very aware of their, you know, contribution to my life, but I don't want to be them, you know? And, and so for me, they've given me the parameters of this is who I do not want to be like. And let me be honest and kind of like a, like a funny way is, you know, they did every drug under the sun. I mean, like they, I mean, they could have alphabetized every single like drug along the way. Like, I mean, they would have helped create the drug dictionary. I've never really done anything. I mean, and, and, and that's a, that's a direct example, meaning like, because I don't want them to have that kind of influence on me. I've never done anything that they have done. You know, I've never ever, I've gotten drunk maybe two or three times in my life and that makes me sound boring, but it's because I have a template for what I don't want to become, mm -hmm. you know? Do you feel like you, you, and, and feel free to reject the answer to this, is just, do you feel like there's a higher like proclivity for you to fall into their patterns if you do, did try like recreationally anything? I would say yes for myself, but I'd also say yes for every every other human. Only because neuroscientifically we're addicts. Well, you wouldn't know until junkies. you did it, right? Kind of the thing. Yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. yeah. <laughs> wow, this has been really, really a fun conversation for me. I, I've really enjoyed it, and I, I think I want to wrap up with a couple of philosophical questions for you, if that's okay. Okay, yeah. I mean, do you mind if I ask you one? Not question? at all. Go all all in, man. So this goes back to your experience yeah. and when you were experiencing depression. Yeah, tell me. Had you known what you know now, how would you have lived differently and how would have living differently changed who you are now? So having gone through my depression, how would I have Yeah, I think ultimately I think at that time I I first off, I have to say I take full responsibility for becoming depressed. I think okay. it was my my own doing, which is why I chose to not take any uh, drugs or any sort of therapy to get out of it because I felt like I put myself in this. I'm gonna get myself yes. out of it. Um, and I think there was a number of things that I I've, I've learned from that experience, which I've actively chosen to put into my life now to avoid or to minimize the 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 uh, recurrence of that state. 
However, I do have to say with an asterisk that I still do feel at times as low as when I was completely depressed for very long durations of time. And I'm talking yes. like things like that you, you hear about all, you know, the classic depression symptoms, like, like I would try to go to bed and I'd be awake in 30 minutes and I'd be literally like, my mind is just bugging the hell out of me all night long. I can't sleep. I can't get rest, wake up, have to go to work, feel like shit, you know, get somehow yeah. get through the day, incredibly tired. Like it didn't matter like if I took caffeine or not. I was trying not to, but I was just incredibly exhausted all the time. I felt fatigued. I almost felt like I was always on edge, anxious, and kind of just like praying to God that nothing like worse could happen in this moment in time. Oh, so I have to say, even though I'm I'm I, I like to think I'm far away from that place, I know that it's it's still inside of me and it's only uh it's only like a moment. I don't even know if moment's the right word. It's you know what I'm trying to say? It's in me that that yeah, space yeah, yeah. is still part there. It's a part of yeah. me and I do fall into it at times. And I, and the reason I can say that is because now I'm able to recognize it much more than before, because I'm like, I can genuinely seem like, I didn't feel like this yesterday. What changed? So I've become more introspective out of that experience. Yes. I'm more, I've, I ask myself more. I, my wife and I, like she will ask me those questions more. We do stupid things. Like sometimes people, think of this as so silly but like she'll ask me even at the time where i don't want to say it, it's like what are you grateful for so like, i don't want to say that yeah. when i'm like pissed or angry <laughs> fuck you mean grateful for it like get out of here you know what i mean but at the same time there's some power to it because when you do it yeah. like you said earlier about you know how your thought process works with forecasting when you start to say things you're grateful for you are bringing those thoughts actively into your space and yeah. they are attached to those feelings and emotions and then you feel a certain way Right. So today I think, and the other reason why I think I got very much into that state was I had just gone from being like this competitive bodybuilder athlete, you know, taking care of my health really well to wanting to be a, a normal, like 24 year old person who totally was like, dude, I want to like go out and, and like party. And like, cause I haven't done that. Like all my college years, I was very disciplined for the most part. Like I didn't really, I was not out and about in parties all the time. It's not like I never went to one. I just, <laughs> I just couldn't like want, I, I didn't enjoy that lifestyle. Like first of all, I didn't like yeah. drinking that much. I, I didn't like, you know, I enjoyed like hanging out with people, but I just didn't really like, I felt, always felt like it was limiting me and I'm also kind of short. So I don't really stick out at parties unless I'm wearing a tank top, I suppose. And then, then, then all the yeah, guys are like, dude, up. how do you get your arms so big? And then they like, just yeah. want to talk to me about that. So it was very weird to kind of go through that, that dynamic shift going from a very disciplined person to then like you know, now I'm commuting to work and I'm sitting at a desk and I'm doing all, and I just started to like kind of break down and all these things that I had kind of built up in my life that were good practices. Yeah. And now they were no longer being prioritized because what was priority was, well, you better make this money, man. Now you better like do this other thing and you go home and you're tired. So you're like, oh, I guess I'll just relax and, you know, just chill out instead of like go to the gym or whatever it is. So I think there was just, I was starting to really go on the opposite spectrum like instead of yeah. being very hyperly like focused on the goal and the discipline and being very self-aware of like, dude, if you don't do this, you're not going to get this result to like completely flamboyant in the sense of like, like, oh, let's go the complete opposite way. Yeah. How, like how far can I push this? You know? And I think that's really what it was, was the tipping point was like, this is how far you can push it. You know, life yeah. is meaningless for you now. You can become very nihilistic. And, uh, and I think that's really where the salvation came from me 
being in and i have to say like cannabis helped me at this time in my life because it was a very introspective thing for me like you know so i remember vividly like the day that i woke up to the truth i was listening to a a teacher online his on youtube his name is muji uh and he's an introspective kind of teacher he teaches you how to how how to self-reflect using introspection by asking questions around like you know what is the i that i'm assuming to be because we use i for everything right like i am this i am that well how can you be all those things there's are all changing (laughs) things well pick one you know like what are you really underneath it all so kind of like him plus like me being in this altered state with with you know weed and whatnot i think it really clicked this for a moment where i was just like completely removed from my character and i started to see life like in that sort of like clarity of like whoa this is what really it's about and i've been missing it this whole time but somehow i deeply knew this but now it's just been kind of brought to the surface attention but i didn't have the next best steps of like well how do i reintegrate back into life if that's the truth then what am i doing with myself moving forward like what how do i do any of this moving forward now if this is what i've just discovered and i think at that time i was 25 or 26 um i'm i'm 28 now i'm going to be 29 next year a lot of things have changed just from those that time frame and i can't even really explain because it's like you wouldn't see it externally if you were to come into my life and like or you know calculate my asset or net worth it's like that's not going to really <laughs> tell you much of the story it's really like i think i realize that there's certain things that i just can't go without so to to help tell you what i'm doing today without to try to avoid getting in that state again I'm really trying my best to, I'm not trying to be a bodybuilder anymore because that's a whole lot of work, but I want to be more active because I think a sedentary lifestyle is just very common these days and it's so easy to fall into, especially, you know, COVID, work from home. You don't have to go anywhere, right? Click a button, (laughs) food will come to your door. So I'm actively trying and, you know, part of it was actually at the time when I was coming back up from my, uh, my, my low point is when I decided to really take a leap of faith and choose to direct my life in, in the way where I felt like this, it needed to go, which at the time yeah. I said, you know, I want to move back. So I was living in the Bay area, by the way, in the, in the Valley, Silicon Valley, oh, yeah. working in tech. So I was by myself. Most of my friends and family are down in Southern California. I'm in San Diego now, but the initiative was like, Hey, none of this is, is making me happy anymore. Like yeah, I make a lot of money, but I'm not happy in any sense of the way I'm not fulfilled. I'm not, I, can't, I could not see myself doing this for the next 15 to 20 years. I thought I'd rather kill myself. And and then I was like, you know, I don't care if I don't ever make money again. I just want to like see my family and I want to be able to be there for them and like just have that level of... Like I was so defeated, man. Like I just couldn't even tell you like the littlest things made me feel like that. That's enough to complete my world. Like I don't wow. think I don't think I need anything like i just want to hug my mom and like that's, that's it awesome. like i but but like i'm kind of feeling emotional now telling you some of this stuff but at the same time i i think i'm just trying to incorporate like okay you gotta do you got like for me like i gotta go ride my bike like twice a day if i can it's not like a hardcore cardio session but it's just like dude you gotta do that it's for your own health you just gotta do it in your head and like you know having these types of dialogues and conversations like this i'm very judgment driven in my own self like i critique myself like too much and starting to like find more love for myself on a daily basis like it's impossible to like not compare yourself when you're on social media you see everybody else's life and not yours so i'm trying to do that more and more and like you could probably tell from some of the questions i asked earlier how no matter how hard you try like some of this is just the process like at the end of the day like 
I don't know how long it will take for me to kind of normalize into this routine, I suppose, or, yeah. but that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to be more aware of things. And when I see that they're not going well, I'm doing as much as I could and I can always do more to set something in play to get me out of that place. Whether it's watching yes. another video with Muji, whether it's sitting and, and writing a little bit more, you know, I have, you can't see it on the camera, but I have like all these moleskin skin journals that I started to get <laughs> fall in love with just because I was like, I never, I never used to read and write really until I met awesome. Mimi, my wife. And, and she kind of brought that into me. And for the first time I actually like would sit down and read in the morning and actually like highlight things. And I don't know, like, I feel like a lot of these things, they just start. I just started to realize and why I started this podcast was I was, I, I realized that we don't, there's not enough talk of this stuff. Like we don't talk about these things. I am, my ego is big enough to not give a fuck and just say, all right, I will take the hit for the rest of you. I will be yeah. that character. Cause I've always been that person. So I'm realizing, okay, well, that's your ego's thing. Be that thing yeah. then. Because nobody else yeah. wants to do it. So be that guy. Be that guy <laughs> that everybody thinks is kind of silly because he can't get his things you know, sorted out. But I know through certain conversations that I've had from my experiences to other people, I'm genuinely able to show them a perspective that they didn't see before. And that yes. to me is really what the entire mission is about now is like, let's do that on a larger scale. I don't know where it's going to take me. I have dreams of wanting to do speaking and, you know, for larger audiences and, and, and one-on-one -on -one and, and building, you know, business around that and really letting that be like the manifestation of, of this work. It's awesome. But I couldn't tell you how and when, and what to do and where, when, and that's going to happen or how is that going to, I have no idea and it may never happen and maybe I'll die never accomplishing that, but <laughs> I don't know. And, and that's part like where, where my like kind of dilemma comes in where it's always there. And it says, I'm constantly trying to orient myself towards let's, let's, let's look at what you could do and, and just leave it on the table after that. Cause I don't control so many things. That was very long. <laughs> that's awesome. No. And I mean, I, I think that's it because I think the introspection is what we're lacking, not just as a culture. I think just as humans, we don't, we don't encourage a culture of introspection. We encourage a culture of action. Yeah. Right. Just, just go with it. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, and, and that's, that's the thing. I think you need both. I think you need introspection that guides the action, not just unguided action. You know what I mean? And that's kind of where I was going out again with the emotional side of things. Like you can't just rush into things and react emotionally because the environment may not be as scary as you think, mm. or maybe it is as scary as you think. And because you're not thinking about it enough. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about introspection to the point of immobility where you're like, I don't want to do anything. It's more that you're aware of who you are, that kind of introspection, that self introspection that says, I know who I am. I know my limitations, know where I'm at, but I'm still going to do this. Right. I'm still going to push. Right. And, and maybe my story up until this point has told me I'm a loser. Maybe my story up to this point is saying I'm never going to lose weight. Maybe I'm never going to find the person of my dreams. Maybe I'm never going to get the job. Whatever those stories are, we have to start there. We have to start there and see them as limitations, first and foremost, not as who I am. You know what I mean? And that's why for Freud, your trauma was not separate from who you were. Your right. trauma was very much guiding who you even are now. Right. You know I, I mean? agree. I, curious to hear your like philosophical view on this. Like what do you think or believe we are all here to do? 
Oh my goodness. It's not a small question. Uh, the answer is 42. Um, <laughs> that was from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and so uh, what are we here to do? I think at the end of the day is to discover our potential and then do whatever the hell it takes to live out that potential until we stop breathing. And how, you know? and how, how does that like translate into your own life? And like, you know, like what, what does that mean for you? How do you want to be remembered? Yes. So legacy. Yeah. So interesting thing about that as well is that, um, and I'm going to answer your question, but um, in terms of bias research, they, they found that people will actually be invested in more of what they're doing if you talk about legacy. Mm. So if you use the language of legacy, if you use the language of what you're going to leave your grandchildren, what are you going to leave your children? You know, what kind of mark are you going to leave on the world? People will emotionally, spiritually, cognitively, psychologically just be fully in, right? And so I think that's important. And so for me, I think... I want to leave the world more joyful and more free, you know, and, and not me, meaning I want, that's my imprint. Yeah. Right. And, and I know it's extremely abstract and nebulous. And, you know, for me, freedom is finding out who you are as an individual, but even as you are connected to the corporate, as you are connected to other people around you. So for me, it's never just about the individual. The individual always leads to the corporate, the individual now in a society that is, hyper-capitalist, hyper-individualistic, it's all about the individual. The individual is the deity of their reality and that's it. And it doesn't matter how it affects other people. Now I know that's, that, that has, is, is being challenged and I'm a bit unfair in my caricature, but to kind of use that as the guiding point for what I wanna leave behind, for me free is realizing that I am automatically going to leave my imprint on the world, whether I like it or not. Right. I'm, right. And so what am I going to do with what I have? And so for me, it is to free people of those biases that are hurting them, freeing people of those habits that keep them from fulfilling their full potential, but also joy, because I think, you know, you, you were kind of joking about gratefulness and, and not feeling it. And it's funny, and you also refer to Tony Robbins as well. And, you know, he talks about how you can't be both grateful and anxious at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And so, you know, and I absolutely love that because that for me, when I'm ever I'm anxious, I'm I'm literally sitting there just writing down what I'm grateful for or mentally ticking through a list. Right. And so for me, though, that's all tied up in joy because joy is all about freedom. So for me, joy and freedom, they're like the best of friends. And so joy isn't just this fleeting. And this is, this is why I was talking about the present, because if you're in the present moment, you are going to be joyful. You are because that's where you want to be. You are where you want to be and where you want to be is where you are. And so it's, it's, it's one of those things where if you get to architect your, your, your reality in terms of your choices and you no longer allow those biases to dictate to you what your behaviors and responses to reality and your emotional responses to your environment are, then you, then you are free. You are more free. If you are the one who starts architecting the biases and you start using them towards the positive and you start developing a life that is worth living, then joy is going to be a natural after effect of doing that. And that's what I want to bring. I love that, man. That's very, very in alignment with what I want to do as well. I say it more cleverly. I just say like, 
I want to remind people that they're peace and love and they keep forgetting it every day. And, and <laughs> yeah. Do that in my own way and then, you know, and just help people see that again and again and again because that's really what is keeping this world going. It's the love. It's the peace. It's not, <laughs> it's not anything else. There's still a <laughs> lot more of that disproportionately to all the other forces that we think rule us. Um, and we just need to recognize it more, I believe, you know, and I think all the things fall into place, as you mentioned, right? Like in the present moment, things are always taken care of. It's yeah. always somewhere else that we think problems need to be solved. But in the present moment, you're here. Do what needs to be done. <laughs> totally. No, you're totally right, right? I mean, if it's if the woman's worried about paying her bills because she's worried about taking care of her child, who she's, who's sitting in her lap at the moment, she's worried about the future. Yep. And the child's right here. Take care of the baby. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. George. It's uh, It's been really, really nice, man. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we close out the podcast? Maybe tell the audience how they can get in touch with uh, your business, you know, uh, with Nudge Culture, and maybe even how they can get in touch with you. How do you prefer to be contacted and things like that? Yeah, thank you. Well, first and foremost, thank you. I, I, I actually really enjoyed these kinds of conversations where they're free-flowing and where there's, you know, no kind of mechanical pressure of like, okay, what's being asked? What's not being asked? Is it being responded to correctly? Or, you know, um, so I love the organic spirit of this. So I just appreciate that. So um, I'm hoping my grandkids yeah, I mean, will watch so, this, to be honest. Yeah. I don't think because nobody <laughs> else cares legacy. right now. Nobody cares yeah. now, but <laughs> yeah. eventually maybe <laughs> when like, I'm an old man, they'll grandpa. be like, oh, granddad, yeah. what were you doing? Like, yeah, I was just doing podcasts <laughs> in 2020. Here, you can check them out. You know? Yeah. This is his legacy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> hey but it's not a bad one um and so um i'm literally finishing up on my website which would be at nudgeculture.com that should be up in the next two weeks people can get can get me there beautiful see what we do build up frameworks there um the main place that you can get me that i spend a lot of time that my real estate is at is on linkedin.com you can dm me there you can get a hold of me there um so those are the two major spaces because that'll have my email there that'll have everything that they need um yeah so i have my personal profile george ellert there and then nudge culture business as well so awesome. people can check out all the good stuff there but yeah that's me in a nutshell it's been a pleasure my friend this has been really fun i feel like you and i could talk for hours and definitely that tells me we definitely got to do another one of these podcasts uh, hey anytime <laughs> yeah and uh you're in la I believe. So if you're yes. ever, ever interested in uh, meeting up, you know, you're in San Diego or anything like that, please hit me up. Uh, you know, yes. I tend I'll to be skydiving down there in the next two or three months. So we well, hit me up, man. Then. When you come down to skydive, yeah. that'll be, that'll, yeah. I live in Pacific beach. So if there's anywhere, anything we oh, can know this. do to yeah. hang out, it'd be great. I'd love to kind of chat with you some more in person and, you know, meet you and your family. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be really, really cool. Well, thank you again. And I appreciate you, your family and your time. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate you. All right, everyone, yes. check out this podcast. Get in touch with George on LinkedIn. That's how I found him. He's very responsive, a soul full of love. You guys will uh, just love getting in touch with him. So thank you for checking out this episode. We'll be back next time.